Chapter 1 of The House on the Marsh, A Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The House on the Marsh by Florence Warden. Chapter 1. Wanted. A governess. Must be young. I cut out the advertisement thus headed eagerly from the Times. I was eighteen and my youth had been the great obstacle to my getting an engagement. Now here was some delightful advertiser who considered it an advantage. I wrote to the address given, enclosing my photograph and the list of my qualifications. Within a week I was traveling down to Geltham, Norfolk, engaged to teach one little girl, aged six, at a salary of thirty-five pounds a year. The correspondence had been carried on by my future pupil's father, who said he would meet me at the station at Beaconsburg, the market town nearest to Geltham. It was about five o'clock on an afternoon in early August that I sat, trembling with excitement and fright, at the window of the railway carriage as the train steamed slowly into Beaconsburg station. I looked out onto the platform. There were very few people on it, and there was no one who appeared at all like the gentleman I had pictured to myself as my future employer. There were two or three red-faced men who gave one the impression of being farmers, and at one end there were two young men engaged in securing a large mastiff, which was bounding about in great excitement at sight of the train. I got out and spoke to the station master. "'There is Mr. Rayner himself, ma'am,' said he, pointing towards the two young men with the dog. One of them was now looking about, as if in search of somebody, and I walked timidly towards him. He seemed puzzled as his eyes fell upon me. Then suddenly he raised his hat. "'Miss Christie?' he said interrogatively, growing very red. "'Yes,' said I, bowing and blushing too. "'Will you come and show me which is your luggage?' I was surprised and rather confused to find Mr. Rayner so much younger and less self-possessed than I had expected. I followed him and pointed out my boxes. The dog cart is waiting outside, said he. Let me carry your bag. I followed him through the station. Three or four big dogs began jumping up upon him and upon me as we came out. Down, Rover! Down, Luke! Get down, Trey! said he, raising his voice. I had noticed what a very pleasant, rich voice he had when he first spoke to me, and now I remembered how particular he had been in his letters about my music. So I concluded that Mr. Rayner sang. He helped me into the dog cart, carefully wrapped me up with a rug, and then, instead of getting in himself, patted the neck of the brown mare, who turned her head and put her nose into her master's hand. I was trying to get over my bewilderment. Of course I might have expected that the father of my six-year-old pupil would not be the middle-aged gray-haired man I had pictured to myself, but for him to be a man who did not look more than three or four and twenty was a surprise and to find him so shy and deferential did not seem quite right, considering our respective positions. He was big and broad, and rather massive, had dark hair and mustache, gray eyes, and a kind simplicity of expression, which perhaps, I thought, with his habit of blushing, made him look younger than he was. He left the mare and stood by me again. "'I am afraid you will find the country dull. You will miss the gaiety of London.' I haven't led a very gay life, said I, 
I don't think poor people are very gay anywhere. But you have not been shut up in a schoolroom before. I can't think how you stand it. I always hated schoolrooms. And it's a fact that I was never in a school without being told that I was a disgrace to it. Mr. Rayner did not seem much distressed as he made this confession. I dare say you are great at cricket, or rowing, or... or... fighting. I hazarded, feeling that some rejoinder was expected. No, I wasn't. I remember giving a boy a black eye once for calling me a dunce. He was quite right, you know. And I remember being surprised that I hurt him so much, for I generally got the worst of it in a fight. They used to say it took a good deal to rouse me. And I didn't do much harm when I was roused, he added, laughing. I hope your daughter does not share her father's dislike of school routine, I broke out anxiously. He started and looked up at me coloring vividly, and then said, with some amusement in his tones, "'Did you take me for Mr. Rayner?' The next moment he seemed sorry for my evident confusion, and added, looking away, "'My name is Reed. Mrs. Rayner sent her broom for you, but a wagon ran into it and took one of the wheels off, so I put my cart at your disposal. I hope you don't mind driving in a thing like this.' "'Oh, no,' I said." That was Mr. Rayner on the platform with me, he went on. His dog rushed out just as the train came up, and he asked me to see to your luggage while he held him. I don't know why he is so long. As he spoke, Mr. Rayner himself came out of the station, letting his mastiff loose at the door. I saw in a moment that he was a few years older than my companion, and that, while they both wore round hats and Norfolk jackets, he bore the impress of town breeding as clearly as Mr. Reed did that of the country. He was slight, well-made, with delicate features and a dark golden beard and mustache. He came up, raising his hat, and shook hands with me. You have been marveling at the barbarism of Norfolk manners, Miss Christie, and asking, when is the next train back to London? But I have been warned by my wife not to make my reappearance at home without a certain parcel from the stores, which has been due at the station about ten days, but has, for some unaccountable reason, Failed to turn up hitherto. By the way, I hope my sprightly young friend has been entertaining you well. Miss Christie took me for you, Mr. Rayner, said Mr. Reed, shyly reddening again, and has now to suffer the awful disappointment of finding that Mr. Rayner is an old foggy after all. Miss Christie, forgive my gray hairs. You will find me a great deal more trustworthy than any of these gay, deceiving Norfolk lads. Now, Lawrence, my boy. If you want us to get home before the mist rises, we had better start. Mr. Rayner sprang up behind. Mr. Reed got up in front by my side and took the reins, and off we started with the five dogs bounding, barking, and growling along the road as we went. We had to drive right through Beaconsburg, up a long hill to the marketplace, which was lively and busy as it was market day, down another long hill lined with the dreary old houses of the elite of a provincial town past a tawnyard, over a small bridge crowded with cattle returning from market, and then along two miles of straight willow-bordered road over a marsh. The scenery was not particularly pretty, but I had never lived in the country, and everything was new and interesting to me. Mr. Rayner was occupied at the back with letters and papers, and Mr. Reed at my side listened to my comments with flattering interest and appreciation. How beautifully green everything is, I remarked presently. Yes, rather too green, 
Mr. Reed rejoined ruefully. We have had a wet summer, and now we are going to have a wet autumn, I believe, and this place will be nothing but a swamp. Don't set Miss Christie against the place, Lawrence, said Mr. Rayner rather sharply. We passed through a low-lying village, some of the houses of which were flooded in winter, Mr. Reed told me. Up a hill, down a hill, and up another sloping road, at the side of which stretched the marsh again. There is Adler's, Miss Christie, said he, pointing with his whip to a pretty red house, half covered with ivy and surrounded by trees, which stood below the road on the borders of the marsh. Here, Lawrence, I'll get down and take the shortcut, said Mr. Rayner. There is a footpath which led from this point of the road straight to the house through a couple of fields and a plantation. After Mr. Rayner had alighted, Mr. Reed and I drove on by the road. What a lovely place, I cried enthusiastically. My companion remained silent. And oh, what a beautiful pond! I do believe it has water lilies, I exclaimed, turning round half breathless at such a glorious discovery. I won't have that stagnant water near my house for my children to play about for something, said he, in an energetic growl which surprised me. I said no more until we drove slowly down the sloping carriage drive through the trees which led to the house. Then again my admiration broke out. Oh, how delightfully cool it looks, with the ivy all over it to keep out the hot sun. Yes, and to keep in the cold moisture, Miss Christie. That ivy hasn't been cut for the last five years and it ought to be torn down altogether to make the place fit to live in. It is no better than a pest house, he went on, getting more and more excited. I wouldn't let a laborer live in it. A laborer won't have a chance until my lease is up, Lawrence, said Mr. Rayner dryly, coming out of a path among the trees. And the two men exchanged looks, which showed at the bottom of their hearts they were not friends. But then it was not likely that Mr. Rayner would care to hear his beautiful home called a pest house. We drove slowly down to the hall door, which was open, and a gaunt, untidy-looking servant came out and carried in my boxes. Mr. Reed helped me down and stood by me, apparently examining the harness, while I looked in an ecstasy of admiration at the dark red house thickly covered with ivy, and at the grey stone portico, the pillars of which were stained with picturesque patches of green, while the capitals were overgrown with soft bronze and brown moss. Then he seized a moment when Mr. Rayner was speaking to the servant, to stoop and say to me quickly, in a low voice, Don't let them put you near Mrs. Rayner's room. I could not answer, could not ask why, for the next moment he was calling out goodbye to Mr. Rayner and raising his hat to me, was walking by the side of the dog cart up the steep drive that led through the garden to the road. I was sorry he was gone. I wanted to ask what he meant by his strange warning, and to thank him for his kindness. A distressing sense of loneliness came over me. Mr. Rayner, who had grown grave and silent and deeply occupied with his letters during the last part of the drive, had gone into the house forgetting to invite me in. The servant had disappeared with my last box. Instead of following her, I stood watching the dog cart and its owner out of sight until a harsh woman's voice startled me. Won't you come in? I'm to show you to your room. It was the gaunt servant who addressed me. I turned flushing, and followed her into a low, long hall, dark, cool, and old-fashioned, such as the outside of the house had prepared me for. Up an oak-lined staircase, through a few of those short and inconvenient passages which abound in old houses that have been added to from time to time, to her corner room, shabby, dark, and bare-looking, 
where my boxes were already installed. I sat down on one of these, the only friendly things I had about me, and began to cry. Somebody at least have come to the door to meet me. I thought of Mr. Reed's words, and began to wonder with a new sense of dread what Mrs. Rayner was like. Was she an invalid? Was she mad? If not, why had she left the correspondence about her child's governess entirely to her husband? My tears dried slowly as I went on puzzling myself uselessly about this mystery which must be so very soon solved, and I was scarcely ready when the servant returned to tell me that tea was waiting for me, but my curiosity was only to be sharpened. Tea was prepared for me alone, the servant saying that Mr. Rayner was busy and had had his taken into the study. Not a word about Mrs. Rayner, no sign of a pupil. So great were my anxiety and curiosity that I forgot how hungry I was, and in a few minutes I had finished my tea and was standing by the window looking out into the garden. It was not yet seven o'clock in a bright summer evening. A light breeze had sprung up and was swaying the tops of the trees that grew thickly round the house. On the side of the dining room, a mossy lawn stretched from the roots of the trees right up to the French windows. I opened one of these and went out. I had never been in such a beautiful garden before. The grass was soft and springy and well-kept. There were no stiff beds of geraniums and verbenas, but under the trees and against the house, and wherever there was a spare corner, grew clumps of scotch and monthly roses, canterbury bells, prince's feather, and such simple flowers. The house was built on the very border of the marsh, at the bottom of the hill which sloped down, covered with trees, towards the dining-room side of the house. I made my way round to the front in the moss-grown portico. From here one caught glimpses of the marsh through the thick trees. I followed a grass path cut through them, facing the front of the house, until I came to the pond which had excited my admiration from the dog-cart. Here the vegetation grew unchecked. The water was half covered with smooth green duckweed and water lilies, and the reeds and rushes, which grew tall and thick round the margin, had encroached much upon the little sheet of water. The path I had followed was continued through the trees, within a few feet of the pond, to the outer edge of the little wood which enclosed the house and garden. There were a few rough steps over the fence connected it with the footpath along the borders of the marsh which joined the road at the descent of the hill. This was the shortcut by which Mr. Rayner had reached the house before us that afternoon. I had turned back towards the garden, it was close to the pond, when I had heard a low crooning sound which seemed to come out of the ground at my feet. Looking about, I saw sitting among the reeds, at the very edge of the water, so close to it that her little shoes kept slipping in the moist yielding earth, a tiny elfish-looking child, about two years old, in a dirty white frock and pinafore, with a small, pale, wrinkled face and thin, straight red hair, who rocked herself to and fro and went on with her monotonous chant without seeming at all disturbed by the appearance of a stranger. She only stared at me, without altering her position, when I told her that she must not sit so near the water, or she would fall in and be drowned. But when I stooped to lift her up, she proved her humanity by screaming loudly, and reproaching me in baby language too indistinct for me to understand. I supposed her to be the child of the gardener, or of some neighboring cottager, and not quite knowing what to do with her, I carried her, still screaming, to the house, where I met the servant whom I had already seen. 
I found this child sitting with her feet nearly in the pond, I said tragically. Oh, yes, miss. There's no keeping her away from the pond. She's there pretty nearly all day by herself. Come now, Mona. It's time for you to go to bed. Dirty little girl, look at your pinafore. She took the child from me, thankful to have been spared the trouble of hunting and catching the little wild thing, and carried her off, leaving me wondering whether my pupil would be as eerie a creature as her sister. As there was nothing to invite me to stay indoors, I went out again, this time to explore the side of the house which faced the marsh. Here the grass grew untrimmed and rank up the very walls, and as I made my way through it, my feet sank from time to time into little unseen pools and swamps, which wetted them up to the ankles after a few steps. However, I went on as carefully as I could, past a tangle of shrubs, root trees, and straggling briars, until, pushing aside the low-hanging branches of a barberry tree, I found myself within a few feet of a window, so heavily shaded by gnarled and knotted ivy, that for a few moments I did not notice a woman's face staring at me intently through the glass. As soon as I caught sight of the sunken face and large lusterless gray eyes, I knew, by her likeness to the child at the pond, that this was Mrs. Rayner. I retreated in as leisurely a manner as I could, trying to look as if I had not seen her, for there was something in the eager, hopeless stare of her eyes as mine met them which made me feel like a spy. I crept back into the house and up to my room, unpacked my boxes, and sat down to write to my mother an account of my journey and arrival. I did not tell her quite all that I had seen, or all the strange impressions this first evening had made upon me. I felt very anxious to communicate them to somebody, but my mother was a gentle, nervous woman, whom I had already, young as I was, learned to lead rather than be led by. I knew that the least suggestion of mystery would cause her an agony of doubt and anxiety about her child which I could not allay by letter. So I contented myself with the description of the picturesque beauty of the place, and of Mr. Rayner's kindness. I had to finish this by candlelight, and when I had ended, I rose and went to the window to give one more look at the scene under a new aspect. My window, I afterwards found, was over the one at which I had seen Mrs. Rayner's face. It was high enough in the ground for me to have, through the gaps between the trees, a good view of the marsh and the hills beyond. A low cry of admiration burst from me as I looked out, over all the wide expanse of marsh, which seemed to stretch for miles on either hand, lay a white mist, rising only a few feet from the ground, but so thick as to look like a silver lake in the moonlight. A range of hills, two or three miles off, seemed to mark the opposite shore. The mist was dense under my window, too, on the very grass that I had waded through a couple of hours before. As I looked out and tried to imagine little fairy boats in the elders which rose here and there out of the mist-hidden marsh, a shiver passed over me, and I drew in my head with a sudden change of thought. How cold it is! Mr. and Mrs. Rayner must be devoted admirers of the picturesque to live in a house that must be so very damp. End of chapter 1 Read by Cassandra A.M.